We begin our series on a hot day in mid-September in a dusty kitchen located in the back of a church in the middle of Ciudad Juarez. Okay, so we're making tamales with banana leaves because they're native to um, Central America and Southern Mexico. This is what we're doing. But how did we get here? To this small church kitchen where 15 to 20 men, women, and children are living, praying that one day asylum in the U.S. will open back up and their cases will be processed. There's a long and complicated history leading up to this moment, and that's exactly what we are hoping to show you a little of today. We're asking the questions of what's really happening on the border. How did it get like this and why are people coming? If these are your questions too, we hope you'll join us for our very first episode of Beyond the Encounter, Desire. Okay, are we rolling? We're rolling. It's rolling. I'm Jora. I'm Jen, and this is Beyond the Encounter by Avara. episode we're going to be talking about desire we're going to take a deeper look into immigration throughout the past 20 or so years talking about why are people coming to the u.s mexico border what are those push factors what are the policies that have been implemented um, that's making people want to come and yeah what the, what is the united states's role in attracting people to our southern border yeah, there's a lot of factors. There's that are... a lot of factors, and we're going to be doing even a lot of generalizing concepts so that we can try to understand, like, what are the larger narratives. But, yeah, even all of these stories are going to have, like, exceptions to the rule and things that don't... There are going to be stories that don't line up with this general narrative that we will lay out. Um, but, yeah, for the purpose of trying to understand changes in administration and changes in economic policy we will try to summarize very complicated mm-hmm. po- like and neither of us are economists <laughs> no <laughs> neither of us know how like global markets work but we're gonna try our best to consolidate what we do know mm-hmm. and what we do know is primarily what we've learned from talking to three men who work at various organizations which work in and among these issues Two of the men are here in El Paso. We will hear from Sammy, our director at Ibarra. Is it already recording? It is. Okay. Is the sound okay? Do you know? And Dylan Corbett. Um, so I'm the, I'm the executive director of the Hope Border Institute. Which is a local nonprofit here in El Paso. They do a lot of research into immigration and um, some policy recommendation and advocacy. You'll also be hearing from Nate Bacon. He works for an organization called Interchange. It's people-oriented versus project-oriented. Or else we, we can also think of ourselves often as like a bridge between the church and the streets. 
Yeah, and specifically, he works at the Guatemala branch. And he has seen many of his neighbors flee to the United States. Previous to living in Guatemala, he worked with youth gangs in San Francisco, so he has experienced living some of these stories on both, both in the United States and in Central America. These three men each separately shared what they know about this long and complicated history. So without further ado, here's the story. There's this influx, a growing influx of migration from Central America, and people are coming again uh, as asylum seekers. So whereas before people were coming for economic realities, now people are coming, yes, for economic realities, but also claiming asylum because of the instability in those countries. What are some of the contributing factors to the challenges in Central America, to people in Central America? And there are more than these, but this is just sort of a brief overview, and we'll try to get into some of these key ones. So incredibly high levels of gang violence. We were working with gang members in California in the early 90s, and that's when California got its tough on, you know, tough on crime uh, kinds of laws. Yeah. And the U.S. followed, and there was the crime bill and all this kind of stuff. So um, three strikes, you're out, yeah. you know, three felonies, and, and deporting gang members to, you know, the, to countries they really didn't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, these are kids that grew up in the U.S., mm -hmm. you know, um, and gangs that started in L.A., um, and so you have these two gangs, the Mara Salvatrucha and the 18, the 18th Street, mm -hmm. started in L.A., and they start getting deported to, to Central America, and they find fertile ground. First of all, they've got tattoos on them. Nobody was going to want to hire them. Mm -hmm. Secondly, they really don't know the language or the culture that, that well, and so it's hard for them to adjust anyway. Um, and what they know how to do is to be good gang members and, you know, and you got a justice system that doesn't work. So it's like fertile ground. And so gangs just flourished here. Um, poverty, in some places, extreme poverty. Many people are struggling to eat each day. A general lack of opportunity. It's hard even for college grads to find work in many cases. The challenge of family disintegration, um, whether one or more parents leaving the family, either fleeing violence or looking for work. The high concentration of wealth and power in the hands of a very few in, 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 in every country we visited. Um, you'll find that there'll be like, oh, there's eight families, there's 12 families, there's 14 families that own the majority of the resources in the country, and it's just a generally known thing. Um, corruption is a huge issue from really low levels to high levels. Um, both just on the streets with cartels or neighborhood gangs extorting people. You know, so there you've got gangs from the bottom, and you've also got gangs from the top. You've got these, you know, folks that are in power that, um, that if you cross them or if you speak up against them, you can easily find yourself dead mm. um, without exaggerating at all. So these are some of the dynamics that, you know, all along, there's any number of these pieces are pushing, are pushing people to move, right? So there's, and, you know, and people in desperation, you know, in large part for the gangs, but I think there are high-level politicians who are involved in all of this as well, um, you know, get involved in, like, um, in extortion. Mm -hmm. So rampant extortion, right? You know, in Honduras, they, can, they call it a war tax, you know, 
impuesto de guerra. Um, and so you might have your, and, and it almost always lands on the small business, small struggling business pe person. Um, but also just corruption at high levels of government and um, links that many have made between cartels and the government officials. A, a recent study in Honduras had found that the vast majorities, um, majority of the members of parliament had connections to, had some sort of connection to cartels. Um, but even that kind of study is sort of kept quiet because it's almost deemed dangerous. Um, the reality of the drug trade, um, because drugs are from, from countries in South, South America, cocaine from countries like uh, Colombia and Ecuador and Bolivia, have to get to the United States. They have to go through Central America. In order to go through Central America, you have to pay the government off. So a lot of corruption in those countries. Yeah, in the late 90s, all these kids were coming from one town in Honduras. The curious thing about this, the ironic thing, is that in this one town in Honduras where they were all from, they're all from one town, and up and down the whole West Coast selling crack cocaine on the streets, okay? Mm -hmm. But they're, they come up on freight train, on the you know, La Bestia, mm -hmm. and they're... But their town is like a town of extreme poverty, and it's right next to a gold mine, a literal gold mine mm. that's making, you know, bringing in tens of millions of dollars a year in profits, which none of which goes for the local community. And so right next to a gold mine where they're actually experiencing birth defects and, you know, kids' hair, school kids' hair falling out and, you know, and... All these, you know, the deforestation, dry, the dried up of the water supply, all these, these factors are just battering their lives mm -hmm. as a result of this foreign investment, right? That doesn't benefit, and they find that their only alternative, with a literal gold mine next door, their only alternative that they can see is to get on a freight train and head to the United States and sell drugs on the street. So when, you know, even, even when you think about these are kids that are, okay, they went to the States and they, to become drug dealers, right? But why? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and you think, oh, so what is our responsibility in terms of allowing, you know, U.S. companies to do the kind of mining that destroys the environment and creates the kinds of conditions that force people to migrate? Do we see ourselves in that picture? There's a leader here locally on the border who would say, if we as a nation are not willing to stop consuming drugs, then we need to accept every single person that arrives at our border from Central America. history to be able to and, and I think this is part of the problem with the flawed narrative in the United States is that people have a very short memory or they aren't aware of the US involvement 
in Central America and and internationally, mm -hmm. and how that and connecting that connecting the dots in terms of why people migrate. Um, and then we've got then we've got all of like what we could say or you like from U.S. policy, various forms of U.S. policy or or domestic policy or issues here in the U.S. that actually affect issues back in uh, in. Um, the northern tribal as well. Many of, the, many of the countries in Central America went through a period of civil war that only ended with the signing of peace accords in the mid-90s. And during that whole time, you had, you had a significant influx of people, places like Guatemala. Essentially, what um, the United Fruit Company, which is now you know, the, the pre predecessor to Chiquita Bananas, mm -hmm. owned a ton of land in Guatemala. And was mostly owned by U.S. interests, including government officials. Hearing about this this problem, you know, of the poor having increasingly, you know, less land to work on, and why was that? So there's this company called the United Fruit Company, mm -hmm. which basically had kind of dominated and bought up all the the, the best land in Guatemala and controlled it. Uh, again, the popularly elected, democratically elected president was trying to figure out what to do with land reform and he basically said to the United Fruit Company, okay, we're gonna take your tax records and what you valued all of your land for <laughs> that you own and paid taxes on and then we're gonna take some of the land that is not under production and we're gonna buy it from you basically through it, like what we would call imminent domain. So we're gonna buy it from you at the fair market, at the at the value that you valued it at for tax purposes. If you think of that, you know, just think about that piece. It's in itself, right? A foreign country, you know, kind of creates the conditions such that you know the best land and the fruit of that land is you know is going to them. And the poor, if you if you if you were if I were to take you on a walk right outside my house, you'd see in these mountains around us hillsides that you think. It's impossible to put a cornfield there, but you'll see a cornfield, and then you know, like a steep thing like this. You think people could fall out, fall in their cornfield and die, <laughs> but that's the desperation because that's what was left, right? By by this kind of, you know, it goes has roots back 500 years into the conquest, but in modern times, you've got this United Fruit Company based out of the U.S. dominating the land, and so. Arbenz comes in, and he wants to do land reform to help the poor. And this is during the 50s, and this is like the McCarthy era. This is the time when, you know, it was like this, the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover were like, you know, tracking down anybody who was suspicious of being communist or left-leaning. And, mm -hmm. you know, there was like all kinds of trials going on about this. And, and so that was that factor in hugely into decisions to um, take him, you know, support the opposition in taking him down. So it wasn't just some pure ideological thing. There was also economic interests of powerful people in the U.S. What's really happening is economic. Okay. And so they say, you know, this is bad for business. We don't like this. So we're going to call this communist. And what do they do? It turns out two of the major shareholders... Um, at that time of the United Fruit Company, their last name was Dulles. 
So if you've ever flown into D.C., you might have flown into Dulles Airport, named for one of those brothers. Okay. So um, one of them was, at that time, the Secretary of State. And the other was the director of the CIA. So with that kind of power, right, this is how power gets wielded. Um, they say, you know, we got this little problem in Guatemala. Well, gosh, we got the CIA. So they actually administered a coup. And they put in their own puppet leader and who reversed all of the land reform policies. Mm. Okay. And so imagine the frustration of that, that after all this, you know, oppressive history, you finally get a president who's trying to do something for the poor mm -hmm. and you raise people's hopes up that even that is dashed. Like even the best possible of possible worlds is, you know, is closed to you and closed by the United States. Let's be clear about that, right? Yeah. So closed by the United States. Mm -hmm. And so what happens? People are desperate. Mm -hmm. And so they end up going into the mountains and organizing. And they end up, and a civil war breaks out a few years later mm -hmm. and goes on from 1960 to 1996. 36 years of civil war. Mm -hmm. 200,000 people killed. 40,000 people disappeared. Mm -hmm. 600 villages literally raped, you know, raised to the ground. Every man, woman, and child killed in those villages. People thrown into common graves. Rampant torture, death squads, all financed by the United States. The 1954 Guatemalan coup d'etat is just one example of the many ways that U.S. foreign policy has been intimately involved in the process. Because you also have NAFTA. 2000 is a significant, um, I think, turning point. Um, it represents sort of a change in the profile of who's coming uh, to the border. Um, in 2000, you sort of you, you have the peak of arrivals of and apprehensions of people to the U.S.-Mexico border, so apprehensions. Um, and in that year, it's primarily Mexicans who are coming to the border. Um, and they're coming to work. They're coming uh, because they're, there's an unstable economy in Mexico. They're coming also, uh, given probably the largest factor uh, is NAFTA. So 2000 is really the peak of that migration. Um, and it's also a time when the economy, um, you know, it corresponds to economic booms in the United States, the tech boom, American um, agribusiness, you know, sort of mega, mega agribusiness is able to flood Mexican markets with things like corn. NAFTA was a free trade agreement between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. And basically... The goal was to encourage trade across borders 
um, such that it would stimulate the economies of all three of these countries. Unfortunately, NAFTA also allowed the U.S. to grant huge subsidies to American farmers, particularly corn farmers, which disadvantaged some 2 million Mexican corn farmers. And with a decline in agricultural exports to the United States, farmers were forced off their land and fled to the United States in search of work. So what was expected to happen was a bunch of like jobs in factories, in like industry would be created, but those jobs, it wasn't easy for a Mexican farmer to just like immediately move to Mexico City and like learn how to be an industrial worker. That didn't translate. And the incredibly similar Central American Free Trade Agreement, or CAFTA. You know, the free trade policies, like mm-hmm. the Central free, Central America Free Trade Agreement and these kinds of things, which, you know, basically to give you an idea of what happened here, uh, we could see it that like from one day to the next, our biggest sort of, you know, big grocery chain here is called Hyper Pais, right? Mm-hmm. And the day after the Central America Free Trade was signed by Guatemala and the United States, the day after, guess what sign went up on those stores? Walmart? Correct. Long story short, it sucks to have to leave your home country and people don't want to do it. Nobody wants to leave their home country and come to a strange land Mm -hmm. where, yeah, you don't speak the language and you don't understand the cultural nuances Mm -hmm. of this place. Like, people don't want to leave their home, like, their homes. So the desire has to be, it's not necessarily even a desire, it's a need and, like, a response to, like, I cannot survive here anymore. The history of U.S. foreign policy and the complicated interlocking economic factors are incredibly important to hear. As Nate Bacon said, we often have memory loss when it comes to understanding U.S. history. But we don't want to lose sight of the humanity of this issue as well. Because each of these policies affects real people. So I guess to conclude, here are some of the stories that we have been entrusted with. Starting with Sammy. We visited a youth center, um, and here this lady is, is, is showing us around. And um, she had taken over a dilapidated building that was abandoned and was being used for drug, drug consumption and other activity, and, and had turned it into an active youth center and had computer labs and art activities and help with homework. Um, and um, she's talking to us, and then she looks up at the wall, and there's like this, this area on the wall that has people's pictures. And um, I mean, like, like, you know, I've worked in, in centers where we've got youth components for years and we have similar looking spots with, you know, but usually it's celebrating something. It's celebrating like birthdays in April or, yeah, you know, some, something good that's happened. And she looked up at the wall. She's like, you want to know why our kids are leaving Honduras? And she looks up and she said, that's why. It's like, those are the pictures of the children from our youth center that have been murdered this last year. And this is our like memorial spot for them. And there was pictures of eight, eight young people, eight teenagers who had been murdered in their neighborhood in the last year. She's like, this is why our kids are fleeing. This is Blanca. I was gonna like share like a quick little story about this little woman. I love. Please. She works here at Abara as our shelter connector. 
You'll hear her voice throughout the episodes, but today she is talking about a woman that has remained near to her heart. Blanca works with countless people and hears countless stories, but Juana's has remained encapsulated in her memory, and I think when you hear it, you'll understand why. So there is this lady that I met in like one of the first shelters I plugged into. Her name was Juana, and Juana was a grandmother who arrived to Juarez all the way from El Salvador with her two granddaughters. And then at the port of entry, she was separated from her two granddaughters and like her granddaughters like were taken in as unaccompanied minors and fortunately they eventually were sent to live with their mom. Um, But yeah, Juana was like this grandmother who literally like she stayed here for like at least eight to nine months over in Juarez by herself after like being separated from her granddaughters. And, like, I just found so much strength in this woman. And she was, like, I don't know, she was the cutest, like, little grandmotherly person you could ever meet. And she was very sweet. And, like, I don't know, one time I remember I was trying to get her, I don't remember what it was, but I was trying to get her to a certain migrant services office in Juarez. And then I had, like, called her, like, a taxi to get take her over to, from, like, the shelter she was at to, um close enough to me so I can like walk her into the office and like I remember it was like raining which is like weird because it never rains in what is but it was raining and then she got lost and I remember her calling me and just being frantic and scared and that was like the first time that I ever like in the entirety that I was like with this woman that she actually showed she was scared Mm. and I was like it broke my heart so much to see her and then but like I finally found her like you know just standing like so confused and like on this, like, little median in, like, a very busy street in Juarez. And, like, I, like, ran to her, and, like, I got her over, and then we, like, ran out of the rain and onto, like, a bench that was covered by, like, a little balcony. It was, like, near a a parking station and or a parking garage. And so I remember, like, she just felt so relieved that I got to her and found her. And she was, like, sitting there watching the rain, and then she, like, starts talking to me about her granddaughter's. And I just felt so heartbroken at this point. I was like, I'm so sorry, Juanita. Like, I can't do anything for you to get you back with your granddaughters. And she was like, it's okay, Blanca. Like, sometimes this is what life is about, you know. Sometimes God puts these things in front of you, and sometimes he takes them away. And, like, the part about life is, like, our coming to terms and accepting his way. So... I was just like, oh, Juana, I just want to say so many things against that, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but she, she was right. I mean, in some, in a lot of ways. And then she started speaking to me about like her little hometown and, and she started speaking to me about how like where she was living with her granddaughters used to be such a beautiful, peaceful place and how like she was with, like, her daughter and, like, her granddaughters and, like, the whole family, and everything was, like, just peaceful and and great, and then, like, how she felt, like, complete there, Mm. and then, like, when, like, the threats started coming towards, like, her daughter, um, they started, like, (laughs) they started, like, just throwing terrible things into their windows, breaking their windows, asking for money, make, like, making threats of rape or assault on, like, her daughter or the children's mother and then like how that like eventually led to her like losing her daughter and like her daughter having to make the trek up to the United States to find some safety 
And then she felt like a little bit of quiet for like at least a year after that. And then when her two granddaughters were old enough, like the oldest was like 12 and walking home from school, she started getting followed. <laughs> like some strange man came up to her and started saying things, saying derogatory things towards her and saying that she would like eventually end up as like one of like the sex workers for like the gang. And then Juana literally made that, like, as soon as the girl came home crying from school, she, like, was like, okay, I can't do this anymore. I'm not going to see another daughter. Like, I don't I don't want this to get any worse. And so she, like, packed up her, like, granddaughters, and within a week she was gone. Mm. And she told me how they had to, like, escape very quietly. Like, no one could know nothing. Like, they had to leave everything, like, almost everything and just carry what they could on their backs so they couldn't make a trace of anything. And then she, like, talked to me about how painful it was when she, like, got separated from her daughters. She talked to me about how she, how it was like to be in those cages that they held them in, when, like, the ice boxes and ice, uh, or in the detention centers. So she told me how, like, she was doing great with the granddaughters in the detention centers. Like, at least they let her stay with them for a little bit. And then, but her granddaughters, like, started making noise. They started, like, yelling and screaming a little bit, and she was like... And she remembered telling them, please hush, please be quiet mm -hmm. so they don't talk to us or they don't pick you out or something. Mm -hmm. And then, like, her daughters got excited or something because they were like, we're going to be with mommy, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's when, like, that's when Juana told me, like, that's when one of the officers came up and they took the girls from me. And they said, like, you're going to stay here and we're going to take the girls. And then the girls started crying and, like, they started crying for me and they were like, I'm sorry, abuelita, like, I'm mm -hmm. sorry for, like, screaming so loud, and, oh, it made me cry. <laughs> it was so sad how she said it. And then, um, so that's how, like, she got split away from them. She, like, still blames herself for, like, not quieting them better. And so I was like, well, no, that's probably not the reason why they took them away from you. I think that was probably going to happen either ways, but, I mean, like, she just, like, there was no way that she was going to dissuade from taking um, responsibility for that. And so she was just like, I don't know, she was just like very nonchalantly like telling me all these like pains throughout her life. Mm -hmm. And then she also just being one of the sweetest women and like suffering from like heart conditions that were like exaggerated because of the crazy heat in Juarez. And then she like, it was like, she took like a deep breath and then she like got quiet for like two minutes. And it was like crazy because usually I get like really like, awkward and like silence <laughs> but it was this time it was fine I was like okay I, I think after all that I think it was fine to like just sit quietly in the rain for a bit I just like remember her saying like um life is such a beautiful thing it's a beautiful opportunity that God gives up gives to us once and it's like we can never account for like what are the things that will be thrown into into our lives, you know? Um, but always to understand to, like, like, it's a gift that should never be wasted. Like, to look at, my like, the things that I faced in my life and, like, to say that I want to throw it away right now. Like, I would never, I would never admit to doing something like that because at the end of the day, like, the fact that I can live and breathe right now and sit on this bench with you and like see the rain in this moment it's like all I could ever ask for and so at the end of my days ah, <laughs> <Juanita>. <laughs> okay
<laughs> I'm so sorry. I miss her so much. Okay. But she was like, life is just a beautiful thing. It's a gift. Life is a gift. And to always treat it as such, no matter what is thrown into it, it's something that is handed to us. And we have to take good, good care of it and to always cherish it for what it is. And so that is like, that was like literally, like there were several times afterwards where I was able to meet with Juanita after that, but like it was just more and more months of just like her health declining and just like her becoming more stressed, even though she wouldn't talk to anyone about it. And eventually, um, like this was before COVID hit, she returned to her country just because she couldn't do it anymore. So, oh, Juanita. Okay. Mm. And she was like one of the sweetest grandmothers and there's so many people that come like to the border that are just like her. We each have one of these stories and it imprints itself on our brains. It reminds us time and time again of why we do what we do. It's the story that we call upon when the work toward justice in the midst of unjust systems becomes tiring. Sophia's story is the one I remember. We met in that dusty kitchen in Juarez making tamales. As she was frying onions, I asked her what she would like to say to the people of the United States. This is what she told me. De los que son esos actores o algo así, ¿qué, cuál es, qué, les, qué les dijiste? Pues lo único que yo les diría. ¿Qué les diría? Well, it would be that every human being deserves an opportunity. Y que los que estamos aquí, al menos yo. And out of the people that are here, at least I know for myself. The only thing that I'm looking for is an opportunity. I'm coming here to work, not so they can give me free handouts. I'm not used to people giving me things. I was taught to earn them. The only thing I'm looking for, really, is an opportunity so I can give my daughters a better life than the one that I had. Because, to tell you the truth, my story, if one were to hear it, is a very sad one. Also, it was never my dream to leave my country. God knows that it was the least of my desires to leave. But things happen sometimes, even if we don't plan for them. I wasn't planning to leave my country, but it got to the point where I had to make that decision. 
It wasn't my plan to put my daughters in danger on a trek through two countries to get to the United States. And so the only thing I would really tell them is to put themselves in our shoes. It's good for others that they have their residencies and their citizenship, but I'm not even asking for that. The only thing that I'm asking for is an opportunity for a time. An opportunity to be able to buy my mom a house, to build her a little home. She's 50 years old and she's still renting. I know that all countries have their problems, but in some we are forced to suffer through different situations. As far back as I can remember, I have never had a place to call my own. I've never had a place that was really mine. And I wasn't able to raise my daughters in a proper home of their own. We toiled for everything that we had. Because of what happened over there, we had to leave everything behind. We grabbed a few things and we left with nothing more than what we could carry on our backs. An opportunity is the only thing we desire. I know that they judge us based on the few that come here to do bad things. But I ask them not to judge all of us for the sins of the few. Lots of us are coming here for an opportunity to go forward in life. And some of us don't really value that opportunity. The only thing that I'm asking for is that we all take into account that before God, we are all made equal. We're human beings, and we're looking for an opportunity. It's the only thing we want. It breaks my heart to remember everything I've gone through. Also, returning to my country isn't an option right now. Thank you both for listening to us and asking about us. Sophia's story doesn't end there. On the next episode of Beyond the Encounter, I just started crying. I was like, no way. And like immediately texted Blanca a screenshot and I was like, is this her crossing? And she was like, yes, they got to cross this weekend. Oh my God. We talked through more policy, but this time specifically about policy on the border. What does our welcome to people who have made this treacherous journey look like? What, maybe, should it look like instead?
What does this mean for those of us who believe in a God who commands his people to welcome the stranger in our midst? All coming next time on Beyond the Encounter.